It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is Jody Daniels. Jody's the founder and CEO of Red Clover Advisors, a boutique privacy consultancy agency. She's also co-host of She Said Privacy, He Said Security podcast and a national keynote speaker and co-author of the Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Data Reimagined, Building Trust One Data Byte at a Time. Jody works with businesses to help them better understand and stay compliant with ever-changing regulations of privacy, impacts to marketing, and much more. Jody understands the challenges of building and managing a business or brand, and when it comes to compliance, you don't know what you don't know, so she works to simplify privacy laws so that you can get back to doing what you love. Jody Daniels, welcome into the corner office. Well, hi. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> oh, great to have you here. And we spoke a month or so ago, and I know we had to reschedule once or twice, but we're both busy and really appreciate you carving out some time today. And um, what we'd like to do is, with all our guests, kind of just start about the early years. We want to hear a little bit about your foundational journey. Uh, tell us where you grew up and what your early family life was like. Sure. I grew up in a little town in Connecticut. Ah. And I had two which one? <laughs> There's a lot of little towns in Milford, Connecticut. Milford, which most sure. Know it people well. actually haven't heard of, but they did have an American Idol from there. So that's right. That's it got right. on the map because because of that. It's there's wonderful town. People, great restaurants, wonderful beaches. I, I know it well. I've spent a lot of time there, and uh, yeah, great great place to grow up. I'm sure that's so exciting. Because um, when I was there, it felt like Timbuktu land. <laughs> <laughs> Brothers and sisters and parents, what what did they do and your, uh, you know, immediate family? Yeah. So two, two older brothers, um, right. much older, like seven and nine years older. Oh, so okay. I had almost kind of two childhoods. Like I had yeah, one that yeah. had the siblings and then, you know, when it was middle school, high school, I was on my own, right, uh, right. which is, you know, has its pros and cons yeah, there. And, yeah. and, and both my parents were entrepreneurial minded. Ah. My mom was real estate and my dad always had a variety of different businesses um, and also is an absolutely unbelievable uh, person in sales. He's the person mm. who could sell ice to an Eskimo. And, um, <laughs> I used to say an umbrella on a sunny day until I lived in Atlanta. <laughs> Where you needed an umbrella. I love it. I love it. Yeah. And what about mom? She's, did she, was she an entrepreneur as well, you mentioned? Or? She is. She's uh, been in the real estate market for over yeah. 40 years and had her yeah. own uh, brokerage and everything when we were in Connecticut. And what happened is in high school, 
my, I mentioned my brothers were older, so they were in college uh, at the time. And my parents and I moved to South Florida. And that was the early 90s when the recession took place at that time. And the idea was let's let's start over somewhere different and let's go to South Florida where my grandmother was at the time. Nice. All the way down in Miami or or Southeast Coast or Southwest? That far south. So we were Palm Beach County. Palm Beach. uh, So Boca Raton. And nice. This probably says something about me, but when we looked, there were two, we were looking at Boca Raton or Coral Springs, and in Boca, they were building a new high school because Mm. really for over the last 30 years, the amount of people moving and flocking to South Florida who are not just retiring, but also younger with families is significantly high, and they keep moving west, building new high schools, and when I was there, they were building a new high school. And I got the highlighter and I found out what the area was that they could move into so I could go to the new high school <laughs> because then it would be easier for me to transition. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's All what new we students did. <laughs> nice. Nice. What were some of the early influences you remember from mom and dad? Anything, uh, you know, particularly from their entrepreneurial uh, beginnings that you recall growing up, maybe, you know, chats around the dinner table? Really about working hard. And, yeah. you know, I was the kid who had to get schlepped to the trade shows because okay. for real estate, they would always do that. And, um, you know, they, we had like a town fair and so they'd always have a booth and it was about representing your brand and working. It was about working hard and making good relationships and really caring about the work that you were doing and the people mm-hmm. that you mm-hmm. were with. And that, that came from both of them. Right. So, uh, I will say my dad might've worked a little hard and missed a few too many dinners that made me sad. Mm. So, what I've taken from that is I don't want that. I've right. built my life right. so I can be here with my family because that's really important. And that's not to say that my dad didn't care about sure. um, his family at all because he's my biggest cheerleader and my biggest supporter. But during the week, he often would always be late or miss dinner and that just made me sad. Right. And so I, I've taken something a little bit different from it. Yeah. And yeah. about building a a strong foundation, whether mm. it's with the people who work with you or for you or your customers and getting to know them. It wasn't just about a hard sale. It was, there's always something behind the person and can you connect with the person? And that's mm. why I've said he's amazing at sales. And anytime I've ever asked him, you know, what are some of your secrets and what, what has made you successful? It's always been how he's related to people. And before diving into a hard here's what my product or service is and how it's going to be amazing for you. It was, tell me about your family. Tell me where you like to travel. Tell me what your hobbies are. Find something that's a connection point. And I can connect that to now where, you know, we have so many Zoom conversations and you can see a glimpse into people's lives. Right, right. And that's, (laughs) I think that's actually been cool because it creates this connection point that you wouldn't have had before in a sterile office. I'm a huge music enthusiast, and I remember seeing a bunch of really cool guitars on the back wall of someone. And I said, is that a virtual practice? So, no, no, I, I collect guitars. And it was just an amazing way to kind of connect and understand that. That's just so true. Were you a good student in school? I was a really good student. I'm a total rule follower. <laughs> so you had- my parents <laughs> never had to bother me to do my homework. And yeah. I, having two older brothers, um, you know, one of whom was a very... A, a great student. I was always looking ahead at sure. all the cool things he was getting and I wanted to be like that. And then in 
my high school in Connecticut, they had a wall of the top 10 students in which schools they went to. And they were almost all the Ivy Leagues. Right. And I aspired, I wanted my name up on that wall by the nice. time I was a senior. Now I left that school right. and I went to a new school and they had a different wall of pictures. <laughs> so <laughs> I did manage to get my name up on that wall. That's cool. What about other activities? Were you involved in sports, music, theater, debate? I was the all around kid. Yeah. I loved every, I, well, that's not totally true. I didn't love everything, but I loved a lot of things. So I was into soccer and then ballet and jazz and tap and- nice. As I got older, I got rid of some of those types of things. And what I really found was singing, hmm. which is interesting because my daughter now sings all the time. And wow. I really was actually that kid who sang all the time. And therefore, in my high school years, I did competitive singing, kind of oh, before cool. Glee was cool on right. a show. <laughs> I did right, that right. in my school or more of a, a classical professional kind of um, choral music and we would compete and travel the states and that was really fun. In fact, my senior year, our group helped the next year's group be able to qualify to sing at Carnegie Hall. Wow. That was really fun. Nice. And so I sang. That was my really big thing. I did a you know variety of different sports, but theater and singing was, was my thing, as was um, – writing and journalism. Yeah. I always yeah. thought I wanted to be a broadcast journalist. Mm. And that meant in high school, I really got started in newspaper. I did my school newspaper and then I did our local area newspaper. There were two, there was the Palm Beach Post and Sun Sentinel and I wrote for both. And I thought that was really interesting. And I spent a lot of time. And then when it was time to go to school, I decided actually that was too narrow of a right. major of journalism. And I didn't do that anymore. But now you're a podcaster as well, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. So maybe some of those dreams came back up true, right? It absolutely <laughs> has. What about some of the entrepreneurial things that with so much, you know, energy coming from both your folks? Were you involved in some entrepreneurial things as a kid? Did you have a paper route or, you know, sell Christmas cards or do different things to raise some pocket money? You know, I didn't remember the like door-to-door -door sales thing until you yeah. said it, but whatever fundraiser we had, I did. And mm. now I think, gosh, I would not want to go and do that. Even the <laughs> or the well, kids. you did it for your clubs and stuff, right? I, mean, I did. And yeah, yeah. I was the person who always wanted the big prize. I, right. I guess I really have that competitive. I'm a very competitive person. I always wanted the prize. So it was, I remember wrapping paper. We sold wrapping paper for some oh. fundraiser, but I had a babysitting club. Oh. It was a popular book series when I was a kid, and, and I created a babysitting club with my friends, and then I don't really think they stuck with it. So I did some babysitting on my own, and that was my early days. And I would work in my parents' office a lot. My right, dad right. Uh, would bring us on Saturdays because my mom was always doing real estate. Sure. So on Saturdays, that meant we would go to the office and hang out with him. We had a tradition of going to the same restaurant, ordering the same thing, and then I'd be in the office and I'd have my, my pretend fun on the keyboard and the calculator. And I would do labels on all the file folders because I love organization, right. which is the polar opposite of my dad. And I'd help organize all his stuff. Nice. And that was really fun. Cool. Was it always kind of assumed you'd go to college? It sounds like at least yes. one of your brothers did, or did they both? Uh, yeah, my parents didn't go. Yeah. Uh, my dad yeah. did a little bit, but never. My, neither of my parents graduated with a college degree. And mm. both of my brothers uh, did. And... Like I said, I really looked up to my older brother and always right. wanted to do that. So it was never a question for me. Yeah. It was always went, a go. And you went to Emory. Tell us about the choice behind that. I did go to Emory. 
As I said, when I was in Connecticut, everyone there, I shouldn't say everyone, but a significant majority went to smaller schools. Right. And I, I remember that board with the 10 people up there and <laughs> all of them going to these you know, elite private schools. And I really wanted that small school education. When right. I moved to Florida, it was the flip-flop. Most of the students went to one of the two big universities. And yeah, I never, yeah. I didn't have anyone who went to those big universities. Both my brothers went to smaller private schools right. and I didn't understand that ecosphere. I ended up getting in and putting my deposit down at University of Florida for that journalism degree. Oh, I hadn't even visited University of Florida. I, ex I was doing everything completely blindly, but I really didn't want a huge school. I wasn't you know, a bit, I wasn't going to be into the big football scene. I just, that wasn't what I wanted from a college. I really wanted a good education. And I was very worried about that large size school. And I, right. this was before the internet, but my mom was kind of frustrated with where I was applying. And I handed her the big book at the time. She made a long <laughs> list of all the schools and I chopped them off for all kinds of silly reasons. Like Chicago was too cold and windy because it was called the Windy City. I mean, right. I didn't know. Right. And then, you know, all kinds of things. So in my hindsight, silly reasons of how they got crossed off. And Emery was on the list and she actually got it confused with what she was searching for, which was Emerson, which was oh, a very, you know, well-known yeah, uh, communication yeah. school. Right. But it ended up as Emery on the list. And I said, oh, why? Well, I, I don't know anything about that one. I guess I can't cross it off the list. Ended up applying. As I was talking about it with people, they would say, oh, it's a wonderful school. They have great tulips. <laughs> they do. Their front entrance has an amazing so Dutch influence there or tulips. something. Yeah. And I said, okay, well, all right. Um, I knew it was much smaller. It was an undergrad population of 5,000. And something about it just was intriguing to me. I ended up accepting blindly and I was able to get a financial aid package because I could not go to any of those schools without one. And I ended up giving up a full ride at University of Florida to go to, um, Emory with a decent size financial aid, but still nice. a hearty amount of loans. Yeah. And, and I really made it right before graduation. My yearbook still has some people saying, see you at UF, go Gators. <laughs> I will still pick Florida over Georgia now that I live here. Sorry, right. Georgia people listening, but I still have some allegiance to them because yeah, I was yeah. almost there. And what was that first job you took out of Emory? Well... Going through the school, I kind of didn't know what I wanted. I, right. I remember filling it out and I was like, well, I like writing, so I'll pick English. And then I, I don't even remember, I picked some other sub maybe ma major and I ended up in the business school sort of by mm. default. But in the business school, the only thing I really liked at the time was accounting. I had a terrible marketing professor mm. and that in hindsight, I wish I hadn't because I probably would have gone that route. But kind of by default, I ended up in accounting. And so the goal was you get an internship between junior and senior year. Right, right. And then do a good job and you get a full-time offer at the beginning yeah. of your senior year. Right. So that was the track I wanted to follow. And that's, that's what I sense. did. I chose Deloitte and had a great summer interning there. Got my offer senior year and then worked there for uh, just about five years. It was a wonderful firm. Absolutely loved my experience and the people that I worked there. Were you, were you on the audit and tax side or was it more from the you know consulting side? It was the audit side, yeah, financial yeah. statement audit. Right, right. And 
I remember talking to a good friend's dad who had started in accounting as well and had built a very successful business. And he said, you can never go wrong with public accounting background. It will give you so much exposure to understanding the inside of an organization and process and thinking about things from a financial perspective. And he's absolutely right. right. You learn how to ask really good questions. You learn how different parts of an organization work. And I've taken that with me through all of my jobs and it's been a wonderful foundation and it's a great firm. I still have a massive allegiance to Deloitte. Anyone listening, it's a great place. Did you have any leadership responsibilities there or were you more of an individual individual contributor before you left? The way it works is often in the public accounting sphere is it's sort of a pyramid model. Right. You have uh, teams and you have small accounts and large accounts, but even the small accounts all still have a team. It just could be one kind of junior staff member with one senior with one manager to one partner yeah. compared to larger accounts, which could have multiple staff and multiple seniors and multiple managers all the way on up. I had a mixture of both, but I really ran one of our largest accounts Actually, it was the largest account in the office. And I worked really hard and became the youngest person to ever take what was called the senior role. Mm -hmm. And that was the person responsible for really the day-to-day operations of the engagements. We had all the staff members underneath us. And then we also had to funnel everything to the managers. And you kind of really had to manage the managers because they were so busy. And you had to manage all the staff. And all that daily specific work fell to you. And I was really excited to be able to to be yeah. in that seat. It was it was uh, a wonderful client, wonderful experience, and so I did. I had a significant amount of leadership experience, really, just a few years in. What were some of those lessons you took away that you remember back then? The idea of building a relationship. Mm-hmm. My main contact at the time was a controller of this very large multi-billion dollar organization. And then I had the partner on the account and recall it was the largest account in the office. Both of those individuals served as my references when I went to grad school, just Mm. as a base of reference from a relationship standpoint. And one of my other team members who was a staff with me at the time, and then she ended up moving to a different part of the organization and we remained friends just a couple years ago, we reconnected wow. and she became a client. Nice. So it's in my mind, all about relationships. Now, while I was there, it was about treating people the way in my mind, the way I wanted to be treated. Cause I Absolutely. had some horrible experiences and you know, public accounting, it's hard. It's a lot of hours. It's a lot of work. It's not a lot of pay. It's <laughs> I think literally the lowest, my, the goal was get a job. I got the lowest paying job you could possibly get in the business school, but I got one. It was guaranteed. And it was a great learning, learning base, as I said. But the, um, the idea of of people was really important as well as organization. There were so many details flying that if you didn't keep track of all of them and have a really methodical way to organize everything, you would, you would not survive. And then the last and third piece was just because it was done that way doesn't mean it has to be done. Hmm. What often happens, and especially in that role, is it's been done forever. So you just kind of look at this year and update it. And I always wanted to try and figure out how could I make my mark? How could I make it better? And we changed a variety of different processes and approach and things along those lines. 
Yeah. So you did a pivot. You you left Detroit, uh, De- Deloitte rather, and you got your never MBA. Never went to Detroit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> never went to Detroit. But you went back to Emory, right? And and began your MBA. Did, now, did you do that while you were at Deloitte, or was that what happened? Uh, yeah. Is I left Deloitte during yeah, the Sarbanes Oxley era. So if anyone remembers the oh, yeah. uh, Enron Anderson kind of uh, situation, it meant many people couldn't go back to their couldn't work at their client, which was very very common in the accounting field, mm. and. I, and I needed to leave if I was going to exit accounting. I went to Home Depot at that time, okay. was doing their inaugural Sarbanes-Oxley implementation, which meant blank sheet of paper, literally. And we were trying to figure out what this compliance obligation meant to the company. Right. And four months in, I realized, you know what? I really want an MBA. And I did wow. the executive MBA Got at it. Emory, which meant it was full-time work and full-time school. Over a 20-month period, we I went to school all day Friday, all day Saturday, plus six Thursdays, no break. Wow. Wow. And, and again, the, the rationale behind the MBA, you, you had already moved to Home Depot. So obviously, you, you'd done your pivot out of uh, accounting and, and into retail. Was it to enhance your skills so that you could advance further in that role? Or did you have kind of greater ambitions in mind, more along the entrepreneurial line? And we'll get to that in a minute. I definitely didn't have the entrepreneurial bug at okay. that time. I had right. the, I don't know what I want to do bug. Okay. And I kind of thought I wanted to go the farthest I could from an education standpoint. And if I looked 15, 20 years from then, I felt like, because I really thought it would be more of a corporate thing and I looked ahead, I was going to need that degree to help stand out and also you know, to learn more. I, I knew accounting, but there was a long list of other things that I didn't know and what I, what I liked about the program I went to was first, I hate standardized tests. Mm. And this particular program, I because I went to Emory undergrad and I was a CPA, they had this really cool program that they probably don't have anymore where I could waive out of having to take the GMAT. Ah, I nice. could apply to waive yeah. out. I thought that was brilliant. So let's yeah. go with that route. Right, <laughs> right. So I did that. But then I also was the youngest person in my class because the executive program really skewed kind of the average experience 10 to 15 years out of undergrad. And I was only five years. And I, you know, I felt like I had a lot to be able to offer, but I also was able to learn a tremendous amount. It was a perfect bell curve. We had people who were like me, kind of young, but I was the youngest. And then you had people who were really 20 25 years out and wanted to go back. And so, you know, they kind of fell as the 10% on the other side of the curve. And that was how I picked this particular program. It also allowed me to stay working. I, I didn't really want to take loans to live and I wanted my health insurance and I wanted all those things. And I also felt like I wasn't sure what it would do career wise. And I didn't want to completely take a step backwards. And this way I could at least maintain the status quo. And in that time, I also changed jobs a couple times within Home Depot. And when I graduated, there was a particular group in strategy I really wanted to go to, and I couldn't go unless I had an MBA or I was from the outside in an investment banker. Right. And I remember right. saying, okay, I have my MBA now. Will you let me in? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, you know, we've all had a few mentors and perhaps a few tormentors <laughs> along the way in our career. Tell us a little bit about yours. Is that something that's uh, influenced your decisions uh, as you've you know, made your career choices? It has mm. uh, on both sides. I yeah. mentioned a little bit in leading 
well, at Deloitte, I had some people who were not good experiences yeah, and yeah. I wanted to make sure I didn't run my engagements like that. And I've carried it with me to this day. And it was just about, you know, for example, time there. I remember I did all my work and I had to sit there watching someone ahead of me finish their work, but I had nothing to do. And I just had to sit there and I thought, this is, this is terrible. Yeah. Um, you know, how they gave feedback was surprising. I, I wasn't told along the way, oh, I could have done this better. Or I could have done that better. So now I get, I'm very direct, but I, I give it at that moment in time. For example, if you sent an email and it missed something, you know what, here's what you could say next time. Please mm. apply that going forward. It's real-time right. feedback. It's not a surprise. And what happens, I think, with surprises is people add them all up and then it's this sort of bomb that you're given. And really what everyone just wanted was, could you have told me along the way so I can improve? Of course. Yeah. And then from yeah. a mentor standpoint, I've, I have a couple. One I mentioned was the partner at the time. And I remember saying I wanted to leave. I wanted to do something different. And they specifically, specifically said, I don't think I could be a CEO. I don't think I could run something. Hmm. I think I'm better suited for being like the second or, you know, the operational piece. And I don't remember the exact phrase that he had, but he specifically said, no, no, I, I think you absolutely could do that. Wow. You just, you know, you're thinking about it the wrong way. I believe that you could do that. And I thought that was really... Um, he gave you the permission. I should find him and yeah. send him yeah. this episode because yeah. it's been a long time since I've told him that. Yeah. And like I said, he's the, a person who helped write one of my recommendations for school. Nice. And then the other is someone who... I had met during my journey there and was one of my client client contacts. When I was done with my MBA and had decided, you know what, I really want to leave Home Depot, I went to this individual and said, here's all my skills. I have no idea where I fit. I don't know what to do, right. but I know I want to do something different. And here's what I like and here's what I don't like. And he was able to see, okay, all these kinds of pieces could go together and let me introduce you to these people and that introduction landed me a strategy job at my next organization. And I am still friends with that person. Wow. Today. Fantastic. Love that. Well, let's, uh, let's uh, shift to that entrepreneurial bug. When did, when did you get bit? And uh, tell us about the origins of Red Clover Advisors. I got bit as I got older and the more I kind of kept climbing in the corporate universe. And then I had my family. I was trying to blend both of those. Mm. And one of the pieces I didn't say in the early part of growing up is that my mom was, and my, my dad, they were always able to do things. I make my mom could pick me up or, you know, maybe I'd have to walk after school or something, but she was, they were always there. Flexible. Yeah. It they was the flexible. It was, yeah. Oh, you just want to go. Or we're just going to go. <laughs> odd time I'll cancel that appointment. Else. <laughs> but they just went. Yeah. And there wasn't a someone else to report to. And as I got older, that bothered me. I wanted mm. that flexibility. And I always yeah. felt like I'd have to look at, oh, do I have a kid appointment and a kid event and a doctor appointment? Oh, that's three things in a week. I can't do three things in a week. Mm. And I hated that yeah. because I'm a fast worker and I'd get everything done and I'm so conscientious, but I always felt like I was being watched. Mm. And I didn't know what it was going to be. I just knew I needed something. And... I stayed at my, it would be, I did four large companies, Deloitte, Home Depot, Cox Enterprises, and some of its subsidiaries, and then Bank of America. Right. 
And I ended up moving to Bank of America. And in that Cox time is when I transitioned to data privacy and went to Bank of America doing digital data privacy. And it was a wonderful learning experience, but I knew it wasn't the right place for me. And as my children were getting older and I knew that I just needed more flexibility, I made a line in the sand and said, by this start date of this school year, I need to be out. Wow. And I did a significant amount of networking all day, all night, early morning, late at night, and talked to a lot of people to try and figure out, is there a soft landing that I could have? Is there some type of work I could do as a subcontractor or a consultant to kind of get my feet wet and then begin to figure it out? My husband was very supportive and we, I found that. I found that soft landing to give me just enough of sort of a first engagement. Right. And then I, I knew if I did that, I'd be motivated enough because I'd have to make it work. But that was the little bit of the cold turkey I could do. But I left and all I had is this little part-time engagement <laughs> that was just a couple months. It turned out to be good part-time for a period of time, but I really had to build on top of that. And right. I had no clients, nothing, and had to completely start from scratch. And that is how Red Clover was born. Yeah, great. Well, so tell us a little bit about what you do. We help companies comply with data privacy laws and build customer trust. Hmm. There are a number of different, I'm going to call them modern privacy laws. People listening, you might see and notice all those emails that say, hi, we've updated your private or our privacy notice. Right. Or those cookie banners all on the internet everywhere you go. Yeah. Those are two outward facing things that companies see or people see that companies have to do. We help companies with that. But there's a long list of internal things that they have to do, and we help them with all of it. Mm. In addition, you might think of, okay, so I have a pile of data and I want to use it. I want to target more people. I want to have more customers, or I want to analyze more of what's happening. Companies will naturally think of how much does that cost? Right. How many people? What kind of technology do I need? And soon... We want everyone to be thinking about the privacy side as well. Should I use that data? It's not only can I use that data, mm. it's should I use that data. What right. does the end user think of that? Let me give you an example, if I may. There were a couple uh, companies that were kind of acquired together. So company A wanted to send emails to company B. Well, company B, they technically might have been able to do that because now they, you know, they had a merger and the privacy notices said that that was okay. But the people from company B had never heard of company A. Mm. And so if you just get this email, what's going to happen? The person's going to say, who are you? Right. And then I'm not going to open it. Then I might delete you. Then I might you know, mark you as spam. Nothing about that is good. Right. And... Instead, could we have done something a little bit softer? It's mm. not to say you can't do that. Or even if you choose to still do it because you think actually this is the right decision strategically for us, what does the language in that email need to say? Right. So that it doesn't startle somebody. Or if you have a health or financial question or information you're trying to gather or even sell a health or financial related product. How do you alleviate the concerns of that end user 
from a privacy and security perspective. Mm. So we help mm. companies think through all of those things, not just the compliance part. That's like the foundational level, but what we can do above and beyond that. How many employees today? We have five and a half employees and growing. <laughs> okay. And growing. Awesome. The and half now- is a uh, chosen <laughs> person who wants to be halftime and it works just fabulously. Awesome. National uh, footprint. Are you working only in the Atlanta area or where, where, where do you, where's your client base? National footprint. Yeah. In fact, the first year in business, I didn't have anyone in Atlanta. They were, right. they were all across the United States, but we're... We will work with companies who are based in the U.S., and they can have a global footprint, but we're really about the company being based here in the U.S. Privacy crosses borders, which actually is an interesting privacy challenge sure. that companies have to deal with right. because there's border issues with that. Uh, but it, you know, data is moving all across. Companies have customers and employees across the globe. And all of that matters and factors in from a privacy point of view. Yeah, absolutely. Well, now that you're a CEO and the entrepreneurial bug is, has bit to stay, you've been in business, is it six years, seven years? How long have you been operating now? Five and a half five years. And a half. Okay, five and a half people, five and a half years. How, how would you say your leadership style has evolved over that time or last five and a half years? Well, you know, when you have just myself and then I started with contractors, you know, that's right. kind of different to when you bring on full-time employees and you're really trying to build a culture. And I want people to be happy. I want people to feel like they have a stake in what we're saying. Mm -hmm. I want them to feel like they own their deliverables, own their relationships, own their processes and the ability to make improvements. And at the same time, make sure it's still wrapped in the, in my belief, we're delivering a very high quality five-star customer service experience. And that's new for me, right? The ability to be able to grow all of that because in a large organization, you have much of that mission and strategy kind of pushed down at you. And here we're, we're all trying to grow a company collectively where everyone kind of wins. And so that's, that's been an interesting challenge for me personally to try and be able to build that and build the team to be able to work together. So, you know, bottom up, top down and horizontally all across. It's been a fun and challenging challenge. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, what do you, what do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in and hire? Jenny? I've continued to learn in that area for yeah. sure. Whether it's a contractor, an outside agency or a full-time employee. For me, right. it's someone who's going to, not just take the status quo, a little bit of like what I learned back in that very big engagement at Deloitte was how can we make improvements? For me, I want someone who takes that ownership and wants to make things better, who wants to be a builder Hmm. and is excited about that, who is able to really be an individual contributor and also a team member Hmm. and feel like they can do that on their own is really important to me. And then we like kind and thoughtful people. Yeah. Yeah. You have a favorite interview question. If so, would you like to share it with us? I do. I ask, what does grit mean to you? Ooh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Well, I'm going to ask you that. What does grit mean to you? (laughs) Yeah. It means that when, when there's something challenging or something hard that you keep pushing through and if you need to ask for help that you do and you make sure that, you do a quality job, 
until it is finished to mm. the expectations of whomever it is. Yeah. Met or exceeded. Huh? Yeah. Met or exceed. Yes. Yeah. Love that. We, we mentioned your podcast a little early. So tell us about that. What, is that something you started right away? You mentioned, I think you've done this a couple of years now. Is it weekly, monthly? And, and you know, who do you interview and what's the topic? The podcast is called She Said Privacy, He Said Security. <laughs> it sounds like men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Or I know. Like <laughs> it does. Well, my um, fun fact is I got into privacy first. I've been in the privacy business 10 Actually, no, uh, 2011. So that would make it 12 years. Oh my goodness. I don't know how that happened. And about seven, eight years ago, I've kind of lost track. My husband got into the cybersecurity business. He is a corporate attorney and deals with all kinds of really cool, interesting technology companies and kind of think like corporate work for technology companies. Well, nowadays data is everywhere and cybersecurity is a significant part of that. And he just found that super fascinating and made that a big piece of his practice. And then we were having a few too many interesting privacy security conversations at our house. And um, in COVID, you know, some people did renovations or got COVID puppies. And so we had a COVID podcast (laughs) because we had been doing so many webinars together and before COVID, we were doing conferences together and people kind of nicknamed it the Jody and Justin show. Ah, and we cool. decided, we, we contemplated that name, but we decided instead, just literally the basics. Uh, I say privacy and he says security. Yeah. It is meant for the business professional. It's right. meant for the not privacy and security person who's talking about it all day. And what we're bringing on are a variety of different perspectives on privacy and security to help educate that business executive on what it is that they need to know to help run their business successfully. It could be chief privacy officers. It could be attorneys, cybersecurity um, individuals, tech companies, different solutions to be able to help recruiting firms. There's a lot in the marketing space that we've brought on. And we also have a really soft spot for protecting kids online. We are parents ourselves and want to ensure that our kids are safe as well as, you know, all of the other children that are in the universe. And so we'll bring on experts from time to time who can help parents make sure that they're doing uh, all that they can to protect their kids online. So it's it's the two of you usually interviewing someone else then or or, or perhaps a panel? It is both of us interviewing an individual. Love it. Love it. Well, Jody, this has been very, very interesting and entertaining and educational. Thank you so much. But we always have one last question we ask all our guests. And that's kind of what career and life advice would you give to someone who maybe has their eyes on their own corner office someday or, or perhaps wants to be an entrepreneur like yourself and start a company? It would be curious and ask a lot of questions. I genuinely, when I was in corporate, I would meet with people just informationally. Tell me what you do. There's yeah. thousands of people running around in this building. What on earth did they all do? Or when I jumped to the entrepreneurial world, I learned an entire other ecosystem that existed out here. I thought in corporate, it was the entire corporate universe and that was all there is. And then there were those like weird startup people. And now in the entrepreneurial world, I learned there's an entire ecosystem here to be able to help and support entrepreneurs and how they go about things is is different and it can apply across verticals or size of organization even. And so for me, it would just be to be very curious, meet a lot mm. of people, but meet them with no end agenda in mind other right. than just 
being able to learn and, and hopefully offer something of value back to them and to be gracious and say thank you to all mm. the people that you meet along the way. Because in my mind, that's how you build a long lasting relationship. The golden rule, right? <laughs> Treating others the way that you want to be treated. I love it. Yes. Well, Jody Daniels, founder and CEO of Red Clover Advisors. Thank you so very much for sharing your journey into the corner office. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.